Good morning, everyone. What an embarrassment of riches this church has. That God has blessed us with so many preachers and teachers and skilled, theologically sound musicians so that from this church, several others could receive tangible blessings this morning. It's amazing. Please go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And as you're, as you're turning there or flipping through on your device, I'll give you just a little bit of a background about where we're at in this gospel. So when you get to Luke 18, some of you know you're at the end of 17, but what's more important than that is what has been going on in the entire book of Luke. And so far, nearly a third of Luke's gospel has been this amazing trek to Jerusalem. And this parable that we're going to explore today comes right on the heels of Jesus teaching his disciples about his own second coming, an event that we know will occur at the event at the end of human history rather. Now, if you grew up in church, you've likely heard that a parable is a heavenly story with an earth sorry, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. You've also probably heard that it's a story with many layers of meaning. So at least you kind of know what sort of text we are working with this morning. So again, we are in Luke chapter 18. We're going to take a look at verses 1 through 8. And this is where Luke records for us Jesus giving his disciples a life hack. You know, one of those shortcuts to life that makes things just that much easier. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Time out. This is awesome for those of us who think sometimes the parables are just too much. It's just too hard to figure out Jesus intentionally veiling truth. But Luke tells us why before he gives us the what. Luke's giving us the keys so that we can get in the door. And he told them a parable, why? To the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He, and this is Jesus now, so he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth. This is the word of our Lord. What do you really need from God this morning? What do you need from God today during this season of life? What blessing do you want from him and how badly do you want it? And for a man by the name of Lydell Grant, all he wanted 
was to be exonerated and to be set free again. I see, back in 2010, he was arrested for the vicious murder of a guy at a Houston nightclub. The district attorney had six eyewitnesses who had testified with high degrees of certainty that Lydell Grant was the man responsible for the murder. Three of the witnesses said they were, quote, positive. Two others said they were 100% sure. And one person who stood on the balcony about 20 feet above the event said, Lydell Grant's face was immediately burned into my memory. Despite lack of DNA evidence and the fact that Lydell Grant had a credible alibi for his whereabouts that night, he was sentenced to life in prison. And so begins this man's Herculean task of overcoming all of those eyewitness testimonies, all of the evidence that was stacked against him, this case of injustice is not going to keep him down. You see, this man knew that he was innocent, so he didn't just go along with the flow. He didn't just accept that fate. So he sent letters. He sent dozens of letters to defense lawyers, and though most went unanswered, that didn't stop him. He filed eight motions and petitions in various courts, and neither every, and nearly every single one of those was turned down. One year stretched into two, two into three, three into seven. And this man has been behind bars, even though he knows he is innocent. And through his increased knowledge of criminal law, thanks to all the extra free time on his hands in the library at the prison, and with some help from the Innocence Project in Texas, Lydell Grant was granted the writ of habeas corpus so that his trial could be reviewed. And he was released on bond in 2019. Just last May, he was finally released. Justice at last. After a decade of living a nightmare, justice at last. In an interview, this man had, because you know the local news, they they have to get the scoop. The same day he is declared actually innocent. Uh, That is a real term. Uh, if, If the government messes up, they will eventually declare you actually innocent. It's weird how that works. So they get the microphone in his face, and they want to know, how do you feel? How are you doing? What are your thoughts on all of this? And he said, I feel good. I've been blessed. God is awesome. His words, not mine. God is awesome. He said he's always known that this day was going to come. Always. Never doubted it. He knew this would come. He just didn't know when. Powerless though he was, just like the widow in our parable this morning, his persistent petitioning, his persistent prayers bought his freedom because justice arrived in, in, in due time. It was at the exact same time that God had appointed for justice to be served. And, and this might come as, as a surprise to some of us, but we know that continual prayer isn't something we do only when the trains are off the track in our life. 
Consistent prayer is not something we do only when all other options have failed and the doctors have given us a diagnosis that is insurmountable. No, that's, that's not how this works. If we are Christians, then we should know that persistent prayer is our standard operating procedure. This is a direct command from our chief officer. Pray and never lose heart. Pray and never give up. And for a lot of us, this is nothing new. Right? I'm not teaching most of you anything new right now. You know this. We all know this. That we're always supposed to be praying. And yet, and yet I don't think any single one of us could raise our hands and say, my prayer life is exactly where it ought to be. In fact, y'all that are y'all better like watch me and, and take some notes. I've got this figured out. I'm doing really, really well in this area. We know that we should be doing better. So today, through the power of the Spirit and the written Word of God, we are going to go back to the basics and see what we can learn. The first part of this is really easy because, again, Luke is a really clear writer here. Jesus gave them a prayer parable so that they would pray always and never give up, never lose heart. So we know this. Jesus is giving us a command, but we have to ask ourselves, what are the consequences of this command? How does this play out in our day-to-day life? Well, I think it's clear in the text here this morning that Christians should pray in difficult situations. Part of praying always is certainly praying in difficult situations. And and this morning, we're going to see in the text two different situations we're going to see some relationship difficulties and some legal difficulties. So so we have the widow in this story. And in that day, to be a widow was a woman's worst nightmare. Typically, if a widow was in the community, this is someone who has lost her sole provider, her sole protector, and her sole advocate. She's now in a very compromised position She is in a very weakened estate, if you will, and she is likely to live a life in destitution and poverty. If if you no longer have a husband in this culture, you are very, very vulnerable to a lot of evils in the world. People will prey upon you, and I think that's what's happening here in the text, which is why this widow is pleading with a judge for vindication. She wants somebody to make this right. Somebody to step in on her behalf. There's, there's clearly something amiss in this relationship. Now, now, some people have studied this text and they've thought the situation that the widow is in is some sort of estrangement with her late husband's estate. Somehow, the money from the estate is not being provided to her to take care of her so that she can live and keep her head above water. Others have said it might be a, a relationship issue with a landlord. Maybe now he's trying to get more money from her. Maybe he's trying to um, find other ways of paying for the house that she might be in. However, this relationship has come about, or regardless of the specifics we can see here, she's in trouble. She has an enemy. So clearly the relationship is strained, and now someone is seeking to do her harm. And, And each and every one of us who's been born again, we can easily see ourselves in this parable as the widow. In one sense, on our own power, right? In our own power and our own strength, we too are very vulnerable. 
we're powerless. And we are possibly the same type of people like her who lack social status. We lack economic means. Sometimes, depending on the situation, we might even be lacking the benefit of the doubt in a lot of situations that might come up. And like the widow, we can easily see how these strenuous relationships just kind of compound and everything gets made worse by the fact that for this lady, she's a widow and she has no one to step in on her behalf. Who here hasn't been in a bad relationship? And I'm not just talking about the romantic types of relationships. Think about a relationship with your neighbor or the head of the homeowners association. Maybe it's a coworker or a boss. It could even be someone in the church. Not as likely, I hope, but, but still possible. We're sinners. We know that. We have these relationships where things are just supposed to work well. And yet, sometimes the joy of Satan is to cause pain for Christians. And we have these dysfunctional relationships, and there's so much that's broken. And we get to a point where, like the widow, we just need somebody else to help us because everything we've tried is failing. But other times, we don't immediately think, I need help. We think that the only way to get out of this situation is to fight fire with fire. Brothers and sisters, let me caution you. Satan will lie to you. And he's going to tell you that office politics and behind-the-door deals to try to get somebody back, that's going to be the way to victory and resolution to your complex situation. I'm here to tell you that's a lie. Christians shouldn't be known for fighting fire with fire. We're supposed to be the first to forgive and the first to seek restoration. And we've got this widow here, and she has thrown out the window conventional wisdom because she's going straight to the judge, and she's making a scene. She's making a huge scene because there's something that's telling her that she needs to be praying or petitioning always and not giving up. And Christians, we also find ourselves not just in, in strained relationship situations. Sometimes we find ourselves in legal trouble. Some of you know this all too well. So now we have the judge in this story. And wow, he's quite the character, isn't he? You see, the widow goes to the judge because she can't do anything on her own power. And this judge is described as someone who lacks fear of God or respect for man. And then in verse 4, he confesses his own sinfulness, his own, wickled, his own wickedness. And if you, if you read this the way I do, he seems quite amused with himself. Like the type of guy who would look in the mirror and as he strokes his chin or his massive beard and he's just got the soliloquy. Like, I, I know who I am. I know what I am. And I'm okay with that. Now, what's really bad is not only the fact that, that he's wicked. That's obviously something we're all picking up on. But this man is a judge. This man is a judge, and he has enough clout, enough power, enough influence to where he thinks he can ignore every single person. Like, he doesn't need to bow or cower to anyone. He's just going to do what he wants to do in spite of what God has told judges in the land. In 2 Chronicles 19, verses 6 and 7, we read where King Jehoshaphat, he's appointing judges, and this is what he says. He tells them, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man but for the Lord, 
He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. Clearly, the judge in the parable is not listening. Judges are supposed to be, in some sense, a representation of God's holiness and justice, and this guy isn't buying into that. But to compound all of his wickedness, look what we see in Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22, verses 22, 23, and 24 reads, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. I'm not going to say God has soft spots, but if God does have soft spots, I think it's fair to say he's got a soft spot for widows and children. Did you, did you read that? Did you catch that? If you mistreat widows or fatherless children, I will kill you with the sword. Your wife will become a widow. Your children will become orphans. Do you think that's impacting this judge at all? Because it's not. He doesn't care. He does not care one iota. As one commentator puts it, and I like what he said here, neither the laws of God nor public opinion can stir his conscience. Have you ever met someone like that? Where the laws of God and the opinions of, of people in the community can't bother this person to do the right thing. They're just so stubborn. They're so set in their ways that they don't care what other people think of them. They don't care how angry that might make your God. They're just going to keep doing things their way. So we've got this legal dispute, and the widow could only turn to him. That's just the lay of the land. Remember, she has no advocate. She has no protector, no one to step in for her. So she has only one recourse, which is to go to the law. And so she goes to the judge. She's trying to get her case heard. You know, sometimes it's just not enough for two parties to agree to disagree. Sometimes that can happen. But there are other times when your reputation is at stake. And when it's your reputation, that's also the reputation of your church and your God. I remember telling my kids since, since forever, remember, when we go out, even when we're in the house, remember, everything we do reflects back on our family, our church, and our God. And that's just as true today now that they're older, and it's just as true about me or you as it is for kids. But this widow, she's got an oppressor. She's got an enemy. She's got an adversary who keeps on putting the screws to her and making her life so difficult. She needs to get this taken care of. It's a dire situation. You know, sometimes we can't agree to disagree, like I said, and so we have to make sure that our case is heard. We need to seek justice. And there might be other times when we don't want to go to court, but the joy of Satan is to have us taken to court because of a false accusation. This happens to Christians on a regular basis. False accusations are hurled at them to ruin their testimony, to drain their bank account, and to bring shame and dishonor on the church and the community. Sometimes this stuff happens. And, you know, it's all too easy and it's all too natural 
to get so focused on ourselves and how inconvenienced we are? Like, how dare you falsely accuse me? Like, that's a lot of gall you have. The audacity that somebody would dare accuse me of all people. Oh my goodness, I got to get time off work. I got to dip into the savings to hire lawyers. And, and we can get so fired up with this anger, which starts off as righteous anger, right? If you're innocent, but can very easily tip into wanting to play God yourself and destroy this other person. And as you get all worked up and all fired up, it's just as easily, once your cool head prevails, to sink into depression and sorrow because the stress is overwhelming. There's just too much going on right now and you can't bear it. I would challenge you that if you're ever falsely accused, if you're having difficult relationship experiences right now, if you have legal troubles right now, instead of getting all fired up and then sinking in depression, how about we pray instead? How about we pray and how about we never, ever give up? How about we never discount the goodness of God intends in our affliction? John Dodd was a Puritan, well acquainted with affliction. His wife died. He was suspended from his ministry by the Bishop, uh, Bishop of Oxford. And then he himself suffered grievous, grievous suffering in his body to the point where he nearly died several times. But Throughout all of his suffering, despite all of the afflictions God allowed for him to experience, his view on all of this was refreshingly biblical. And this is what he wrote. Nothing shall hurt us but sin. And that shall not hurt us if we can repent of it. And nothing can do us good but the love and favor of God in Christ. And that we shall have if we seek it in good earnest. Afflictions are God's potions, which we may sweeten by faith and prayer. But we often make them bitter by putting into God's cup the ill ingredients of impatience and unbelief. When we are in the valley, when we are facing enemies, when we feel the difficult situations crowding us in, suffocating us, we have to pray and we can't give up. We see that right here in this parable, but we also see that Christians should pray despite rejection or delayed response. You'll see that in verses 4 and 5. Christians should pray despite rejection or delayed response. Now, what sort of situations might we find ourselves in where we're going to be rejected? What sort of instances might you have come across in the past six months even where you realize in hindsight you weren't ignored, God just didn't answer when you wanted him to. Now, in, in this text right here, in this parable, we don't know specifically how the judge rejected or refused the widow. We don't know if he just straight up ignored her and pretended like she didn't exist. We don't know if he got in her face and berated her and tried to put her in her place. Maybe something a little more common if it happened back then like it does today. You ever go to the Secretary of State and you just get the runaround. You're told to go here, then you're told to go back. It's like you keep on getting transferred to somebody else whose actual job it is. I don't know specifically how he rejected her, but we know that it happened repeatedly. And we know that she didn't give up in her petitions because she had a righteous cause. She had to have justice. She needed this. 
You know, I think far too many of us pray like little boys, knocking at doors, running away, like praying to God in a vulnerable sense or a vulnerable state. It's kind of like playing ding-dong ditch and you just don't want to be get caught. You don't want to get caught. You're scared of being found vulnerable. You're scared of admitting your own weakness. So you pray like you're just going to knock and run. You don't actually wait until someone answers the door. Afflictions are something that God can use. And when we have something like this, like this woman does, we can see Christ working in her constant petitions, even though she didn't get a yes the first time. Verse 4 tells us that the unrighteous judge denied the widow's request. He dismissed her case out of hand. He just simply could not be bothered to right the wrong. And this is where I love, I love this so much about the widow. She makes a scene. Maybe you got to read between the lines just a little bit to get this, but she keeps on coming back. Einstein would have said this lady is insane. You know his definition on insanity, right? It's doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different result. She doesn't care what you think of her as an outsider. She needs justice from the judge. So she goes back day after day after day. She's pleading her case. She doesn't care if she looks pathetic or like a whiny baby. She needs justice. This is paramount. She cannot live without this. She needs her case to be solved. And that's just what she did. She just kept on going. But like, what other choice did she have? Like I said, she's a widow. She's got no one else to defend her. So she's going to keep on bugging this guy until he gets off of his butt and does something. The widow's constant intercession bought success. And I think Jesus wants us to see that here. The fact that she kept on bugging him, kept on pestering him, she wore him down. And he finally did something about it. But verse 5, back to the judge. We, we get this evil, wicked guy. Like I said, he's got his soliloquy going. He's reminiscing or he's, he's amused with himself about how evil he is. And he's thinking, you know, I don't give a rip about anybody. I don't care what God says. I don't care what people think of me. And I certainly don't care about this widow. But yet, oh man, she is getting on my last nerve. She is annoying as all get out. My goodness, this lady won't shut up. Every single day, it's Mr. Judge, Mr. Judge, and I just can't take it. She's driving me nuts. So you know what I'm going to do? Okay, this is what I'm going to do. Even though I'm a jerk and I don't care about anybody, I am going to give her what she wants so, oh my, so I can have some peace and quiet. I will finally get her off my back. You know, when I was about 10, my family moved me and my family to Missouri. And one of the very few highlights I have of that particular portion of my childhood was the occasional trip to Jolly Cone. Uh, it, it was a quintessential Southern American outdoor eating establishment. If you picture it in your mind, you can probably figure it out. You got the drive-in, you got the walk-up window. You don't actually eat inside anywhere. Uh, they're known for their charbroiled burgers, milkshakes, salty fries, and their world-famous chili cheese fries. Food was great as a kid. You know, food was great. I loved when we got a chance to go to Jolly Cone. But their marketing campaign still boggles my mind. Just outside of the small town of Van Buren, Missouri, uh, close to uh, Highway 46, I think it was, massive, massive billboard. And this is what it says. Jolly Cone, scream, Till dad stops the car. 
And come on, if you know me, you know I did that at least once. <laughs> Twice. I will promise you this. I got more lashes with a switch than I ever did milkshakes. I don't know what genius thought, hey, you know what we need to do to sell more milkshakes and burgers? We need to assault parents. We need for them to see this sign every time they drive past town. And that's going to get more butts in seats so we can sell more burgers. You know, what's even more crazy than that is the fact that the picture, yeah, there was a picture that went along with this cartoony picture of kids. And this is all you could see in there. Screaming, we want jolly cone. But what would have been a more impressive and accurate picture would have been this overworked, stressed out, tired dad taking his kids behind the tool shed because they thought it was a great idea to scream their heads off bloody murder when he had autopilot on at 60 miles an hour and then he wrecked the family vehicle. No, I did not cause any wrecks. But like the whole premise is flawed. The idea that you want something so bad that instead of saying, hey, hey Dad, um, can we go to Jolly Cone sometime? I'd really like to have a shake. Instead, scream your head off like a banshee until he finally says yes. Like somehow you are going to wear down your dad and he's going to reward you for acting like an animal in the back seat of the car despite the constant slaps. Hey, calm down back there. Don't make me pull over. Different generation. You guys who were a little bit younger maybe never had that. I did. And to think you're going to be rewarded for your behavior like that. And you know what's sad is that that's how some of you pray. It's true. It's how some of us pray. Because we, we've got it set in our mind that I want something and God's not giving it to me right now. So I'm going to ask him again. And I will ask him again, and I will ask him again, as if God is some unrighteous judge holding something good for you, and he's keeping it away. As if somehow your prayers are going to annoy God, where you're going to wear down his defenses. Christian, listen up here. Your prayers are not wearing God down. Your cries for help are not annoying to God. You cannot wear down his so-called defenses. Your prayers are a joy. We see this clearly in Luke 12, 32. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Proverbs 15, 8 says that the Lord delights in the prayer of the upright. God is not some unjust judge. If you have not received the answer you want, no, one of two things is going on. Either A, God is saving you from your own stupidity. And I'm speaking bluntly because sometimes that's what we need. Number two, God has decided that your deliverance, the answer to your prayer, must come at a later time to achieve his good. Charles Spurgeon or, or, Tim, Keller, or Tim Keller, quoting Charles Spurgeon, one of them said that if your deliverance doesn't come now, just know that if you were as smart and wise as God, you would have picked the same date God did to deliver you. Think about that for a minute. If you were as smart as God, you would have picked the same day and the same way to answer your prayer. Prayer is the God-ordained, God-chosen means 
by which he chooses to work in the lives of his children. That's us, the elect. Prayer is the God-ordained, God-chosen means by which he chooses to work in our lives. So keep on praying for justice. Keep on praying for salvation for lost loved ones. Keep on praying for reconciliation with that estranged family member. Keep on praying for victory over sin. Pray for peace. Pray for spiritual fruit. Pray for victory in your life. Pray for opportunities to witness. And don't ever give up. Don't ever grow weary. Now, so far, we've talked about two consequences or two ways Jesus' command plays out in the lives of Christians. We have to pray in difficult situations, whether they be relational or legal. We have to pray even if we face rejection like the widow or a delayed response. But, you know, Christians also need to pray, number three, with expectant faith. Christians should pray with expectant faith. We see that in verses six through eight. Now, we're going to get just a little bit technical for like two seconds, all right? In verses six to eight, Jesus is using a lesser to greater argument. And this is really what, what it looks like. So Jesus says in verses six and eight, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. So just envision with me, Jesus holding out his hand like this for impact. Listen up, right here. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. So if we take a time out, what is the unrighteous judge saying? He's saying, even though I'm a bad guy, even though I enjoy being a bad guy, even though I don't know her and I don't owe her anything and I really don't even like her, she's getting on my last nerve, I will do the right thing just to get the monkey off my back. And then we keep reading. Verse 7. So now Jesus holds out another hand. And will not God give justice to his elect whom cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Compare this dirtbag who won't do the right thing until after he's been worn down. How much more is God, your heavenly Father, going to do what pleases him to do for you? Because he loves you. He's got a relationship with you. This righteous judge and our Father, He desires and delights to respond to His children. God will bring justice in the day of trouble. God will judge those who persecute the righteous. God will vindicate all Christians. It's just not happening right now. We're going to wait for Jesus to return. Jesus knows that if you live a life of obedience to him and his word, you're going to go through trials. Life is going to be hard, and you're going to have to pray and never give up if you're going to make it through. Do you remember what I said in the beginning of the sermon, how Luke 18, all of this right now with Jesus, comes right on the heels of Jesus teaching about himself coming back for the second time? That comes into play here. Verses 7 and 8, do you see what Jesus says? Our prayers should be full of confidence because Jesus has promised us right here in his word that he will give us justice. He will vindicate us and he will do so speedily. And this is where every preacher wishes they could just crawl under a rock because everyone out here, when you read this, are supposed to look at me like, Jason, do you know what time it is? speedily. 
Bro, it's been 2,000 years. What are you talking about this soon or this speedily business? And this is where I'm just really, really thankful as a pastor and as your friend to remind you of 2 Peter 3.8. You already know where this is going. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So to say soon or speedily, remember, we're working on God's clock, not ours. But, because that could seem like a cop-out answer, listen, when did Luke write this book? I'll tell you, because I did the homework on it. Roughly 60 years after Jesus gave this parable. 60 years after Jesus wrote this parable, he's putting pen to paper, writing soon or speedily. Luke never gave up. Luke always had the confidence and the hope that Jesus is coming back soon, according to his own time. And I hope that that gives us confidence. But, but what does that do right now in the interim? We've got this space between Jesus' first and second coming. We've got this gap. And this is the same gap that the early church lived in. A time when we have God giving us kingdom blessings, even though everything has not been fulfilled fully just yet. We see this throughout the early chapters of Acts. God gives us final vindication, but right now we enjoy many, many kingdom blessings, namely the Holy Spirit, that we have peace. So theologians refer to this time frame as the already and the not yet. The already on one hand and the not yet on the other hand. We know that Jesus, in his perfect love, bought for us our redemption, our sanctification, our justification. He has made a way possible for us to be adopted into God's family, to be grafted into the true vine. And he's done this in such a way that we are already considered saints. We are already considered holy. But if we look inside ourselves, we know that is not at all true in one sense. Because we're still going through the process. We're still waiting for the final culmination. So this is where we're at. We're in this already and not yet stage. Even though Jesus, by the shedding of his blood on the cross, made a way for us to receive redemption and adoption and salvation in him. How many of you have ever, maybe in October, sometime in November, snuck into the attic or maybe checked the garage or the stairs under the, under the basement and you were looking for those unwrapped gifts that mom and dad had just got, but you just wanted to see, you just couldn't contain your excitement. You had to know, did I get what I put on my wish list? Man, it can't be only me. You kind of feel like James Bond or some secret spy, like you're tiptoeing as best you can. You're really trying to be careful that nobody knows that you've pilfered through everything to find out if your holy grail item is right there for you. And then you see it. And that sense of overwhelming joy and gladness just washes over you like nothing else. And you are so excited because you got it. The thing that you put at the top of your wish list, it's yours. Or, or, or it will be yours, right? Because you've still got a month and a half, six weeks, eight weeks, maybe depending on how early your parents shopped. It's yours, but it's not yours yet. So that video game you might have had, it's yours, but you don't get the joy and the satisfaction of getting your initials on the high scoreboard. The outfit that you had your eye on, mom and dad got you the outfit you wanted, but you don't get the compliments about how nice you look in it because it's still wrapped up. You, 
maybe as an older person, as an adult my age, maybe, maybe you got that grill, but you're not tasting juicy steak yet because it still needs to be assembled. Like, sure, it's yours, but you have not actually fully realized the reception of the gift. It's not fully yours just yet. Jesus sacrificed himself and he bought for us every good blessing. And we are expecting to receive the final fulfillment of all of those at his return. And in the meantime, we're going to be counting on his return because he tells us right here, I'm coming back. I am coming back. So we know that there are present blessings and there are future rewards while we wait for Jesus to come back. And in the meantime, he tells us, life's going to be hard. So pray always and don't lose heart. Don't give up. So what's your prayer life like? What is your prayer life like, really? Is it confident? Is it lively? Is it energetic because you're joyful knowing that your Savior is going to return and that ultimate justice will come and that his will will be done? Does your prayer life reflect that of a good Christian soldier following her marching orders? Does your prayer life look something like that where you're in constant expectation that God will deliver as he sees fit? Like like Jacob, do you wrestle with God and demand to be blessed? Or are you a hypocrite and a coward? Do you knock and run away? Do you give up on prayers because you just can't be bothered? Maybe you got a no last time you prayed for something and it just left a bad taste in your mouth. You're like, what's the point? He's going to do what he wants anyway. Maybe you cannot stand the idea of confessing your own limitations, your own weakness, your own frailty. Maybe you just lack the faith that God's capable of doing anything. So you don't pray when your friend's in the hospital, Lord, please heal my friend. Maybe you don't pray for the salvation of a lost loved one. Maybe you don't pray for restoration in your marriage because you don't believe God can do anything about it. Are you scared? Are you like Saul? Who, who prays to God and then doesn't get an answer back quick enough so he takes matters into his own hands. I know that none of us here are going to raise our hand and say, no, 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 Jason, I, my prayer life's good, okay? I got this. Check the box. Give me the next sermon. I need to learn something that's helpful. None of us are that cocky. We're just not going to do it. So all of us would admit that we have room to grow here. So let me ask you again. What do you really need from God right now? What do you want from God right now? How badly do you want these things? Are you praying about them? Some of you might say, Jason, I, I'm ashamed to admit I don't know how to pray. I am lonely and I am scared for my salvation because I don't know that I have it. Or Jason, I've become a Christian, but I haven't been to church in a long time. I've never taken the study of God's word very seriously. I don't know how to pray. Good. Let's start with that. Let's start with that right there. Don't tell me, tell God. I will pray with you and for you. Tell God you don't know how to pray. Tell God that you're lonely. Tell God that you're scared. Tell God that you are broken. Tell God that you need him. Tell him how weak you are without him. He will answer you. 
Cry out to him always because he's going to deliver. No matter what difficult situation you find yourself in, no matter how many times you feel like you're being rejected by someone in the world, or no matter how long the delay is you believe God is giving you, pray always and don't give up and pray with all confidence. This widow had the cards stacked against her and she continually persisted. And Jesus wants us to see here, our heavenly father is so much better than a wicked judge. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for your word this morning. And thank you for Luke capturing this story that Jesus had told his disciples. Lord, if there is someone here who has never prayed to you, never cried out to you and asked you to forgive them of their sins, I pray that today would be that day. I pray that they would come up to me or someone else in this service and they would ask for help to learn how to pray, to know how they can be saved. I pray, Lord, for those who are weary and broken and feel defeated and depressed this morning, whose, whose prayer life is, is not even on the ropes. It's been knocked out completely, Lord. I pray that you would resurrect their prayer life. I pray that you would give them joy in praying to you, in communing with you. I pray, Lord, that you would go with us as we go our separate ways today and that you would remind us how good you are. You are so much better than this wicked judge. You delight to hear our prayers. You delight to give us the kingdom, Lord. You delight to give us salvation and peace and joy and patience and hope. Lord, you delight to give us all good things, Lord. Please have your word do its work on our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.